Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I am Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is a true crime documentary review on the anthrax attacks. This is Andrew from the Scary Mysteries podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and creepy true crime compilations on Mondays. And on Wednesdays, we have our Twisted News episodes, where we get you up to speed on the most terrifying and strange news stories currently happening all around the world. We're covering the topics you want to hear about, missing persons, killers, UFOs, and more. Best of all, we don't waste your time with any fluff or fillers, just straight to the true crime details. So go check out the Scary Mysteries podcast, and I'll see you there. Welcome back, everybody. Again, we're going to cover for you today our, our review and our thoughts on a documentary. Thankfully, one that is one episode and easily digestible in 90 minutes. <laughs> yes. Bringing our domestic terrorism theme to an end this month. Exactly. So what else we got going on housekeeping wise? We have some new Patreon members. We have some new YouTube subscribers. Yes. Strictly because Dr. Shiloh is so popular <laughs> on surviving the survivor it's like they went they reached out to me and i was like oh i can't do it dr shiloh should come on and then now it's like i don't exist <laughs> oh my gosh i remember that they did reach out to you first they must have saw you on news nation or something i think, I think that's it was around it was, that time yeah. but it's hard to do some of those things and you guys we oh got gosh. some other yeah. inquiries this week to come on was it court tv yeah but you know they're doing it all day, every day. And they just need people like that afternoon or right. that evening. And that is not how you and I flow. <laughs> like, it's so tough. We've I think had if we to... had more flexible time, but you know, I mean, we, we say it ad nauseum, but it really is true. You and I have very full schedules. Like, Well, especially being full. on the West Coast, like yeah. we're still working when they're ready to air their evening thing. So yeah. it's tough, but we absolutely adore Joel and his show. And yeah, I, I went on to talk about the Rachel Moran case where there's been yeah. like a crazy LA twist to that. So you guys go check it out, please, and show Joel some love. And he has a show almost every single day. So tune into that. All right. In last week's episode, Scared Straight Reform Schools, we reviewed the very concerning history of the way various states within the U.S. have historically and even now currently handled juveniles that are considered out of control from incarceration to reform schools. And now the trend of wilderness camps, young people are forced into brutal environments by sketchy and often very poorly, if trained at all, facilitators. Children of the average American family, as well as children of celebrities themselves, are sent to these camps, and the experiences are rarely positive. For years, ineffective interventions have moved across the line from discipline into torture, leaving emotional damage that continues to impact these people's lives. This was a very important episode. I think that we really, we scraped the surface and we did a couple of dives into certain areas. It's something that we probably could have done an entire season on if we were one of those types of shows, because the stories are really, really disturbing. Yeah, Please check it out. Rough. It was rough and pretty touching to some people who've reached out. So. Yes. But before we get into our doc review this month, let's talk about what we're watching, listening to, reading, yes. what have you. Scott, what about you? Why don't you start us off? 
So I got a, a suggestion again on Discord from one of our Patreon members. You get so many great ideas from them of a show that I had never heard about. And we had we were having a back and forth discussion about Lori Vallow. And this listener said, hey, you know, you really should check out a podcast that's been going for three years. They followed it all the way through. They've, you know, started out raw, just basically turned on their channel. And it's it is mm -hmm. very you see this organic growth of this these two women hosts. It's called Pretty Lies and alibis and what oh, I with love Gigi. Gigi's one of the hosts yeah so she was on STS with me the other night oh great okay yeah. well it's it's wonderful and what's really great is and I think that they would probably know this too is that all of us were so in the dark that we really kind of made a lot of assumptions about who Lori was and who Chad was which has now kind of reversed I think yeah. that there's like, the, as more information has come in, we have a, a better understanding. But I think they do a great job. They have additional scoop on these horrific murders. And, you know, I'm always up for a dive into Folea Do, which is clearly <laughs> what's Indeed. going on here. And, you know, after about 20 minutes nightly of going back and forth with Dan of, what do you want to watch? No, what do you <laughs> want to watch? I did remember a suggestion from somebody at work for a show called Inside Man. And it's a series. Not, there are several shows or movies. Yeah. This one is a British series with Stanley Tucci. David Tennant and Dolly Wells. It gets batshit crazy within the first 15, 20 minutes of the show, almost with an unbelievable premise, but it still pulls you in. And oh. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. And also there's a, I mean, everybody should know Stanley Tucci. He's amazing. David Tennant is amazing. There's also this sort of actress who's been around four years and has only started to really hit it in these really meaty roles recently. Her name is Dolly Wells and she's fascinating. I don't even want to give anything away because the first episode is just like this tour de force of, of psych drama. I mean, it's a crime drama, but there's really a lot of like motives going on that immediately drew me in. So I highly recommend it. Nice. And where is, where can we watch that? You can watch that on, that's a good question. I know. It's like, there's so many streaming services. I believe it's, it's Netflix, but I okay. could be wrong. Inside we'll, Man. We'll, yeah. Inside Man I'll with Stanley Tucci. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I need something to watch during Hurricane Hillary today. Oh, that's right. It's, <laughs> it is. It's raining here. We don't feel like, I guess we're not supposed to get really the full force of it until this afternoon, but yeah. I mean, for L.A. to have rain in August is pretty rare anyway. It's so. weird. And it's that hot, sticky tropical yeah. storm. Absolutely. OK, so I watched the Smartless docuseries, which on HBO podcast is great. This was so cool just to see like a behind the scenes. See the three of these guys interact with each other on the road is priceless in and of itself. So it was a really good watch. Did you and Dan watch it? No, we haven't watched it yet. But I mean... It's just clear from even listening to the podcast how much all of them get along. And, and yeah. Sean is a friend of our friend Bob. So we've uh -huh. spent a couple of um, nights with him and Scotty, his husband. They're, they're just like really great, the most unbelievably down to earth people. Yeah. So seeing these these the friendship between these three guys and the absolutely laser sharp humor is always I know. a treat. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how Sean does it. Like <laughs> with the other two guys, they're just 
hilarious and yeah. crude and he is so good at just rolling with their bullshit which you get on the podcast right. but it was kind of cool the way that it was done and seeing him visit all these cities i'm also in the middle of listening to an older podcast but it's 13 hours inside the nova scotia massacre so that was the spree attacks that happened in april of 2020 where this guy one night kills his neighbors set houses on fire in the neighborhood and then flees in this replica patrol car for the RCMP and then goes on the shooting tirade. It's just wild. And they kind of go hour by hour of the event. And I think that not dissimilar to what we're going to talk about today, definitely, you know, fell under the shadow of COVID because it was April of 2020. And it was just a really big domestic terrorist attack really in Canada. So very good. Recommend. And then I'm reading a book. I just started it, but this was comes at the recommendation of our friends back in New York. So it's called Jimmy the King, Murder, Vice, and the Reign of a Dirty Cop. So that's by Gus Garcia Roberts. And it's about the police corruption over a 40-year span in Suffolk County, New York. So if that sounds familiar, that's where the investigation for the Long Island serial killer has taken place. And it's pretty wild to listen to how incestuous the police corruption has been on that island, on that particular part of the island for a very long time. So, so far, very good. Highly recommend. Cool. Yeah. All right. So, yes, we are reviewing the anthrax attacks. Actually, the full title is the anthrax attacks in the shadow of 9-11. And it has a Rotten Tomato score of 89%. However, the audience score is only 48%. I think that's like the biggest discrepancy I've seen. It's very interesting, but I can understand why. I mean, I yeah. liked it a lot. We'll talk more about it, but yeah. 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 So trigger warning here. It's really about discussion of a domestic terrorism event and descriptions of symptoms of a major illness. I think that's all we really have to cover today. I mean, there's certainly some grief and loss in here and hearing from survivors. So along those lines, listen with care if you need to. So let's get started. Sure. Also, just some as soon as I said that we haven't gotten much rain, it is now is dumping. It? Yeah, it's really <gasps> loud that I can it? hear because we have these newfangled microphones that pick up a lot. So oh, folks, I, I apologize. We have a, our fantastic editor, Jason of Ear Cult will probably do his amazing magic on it. But if you hear a little bit, that's a little bit of our gift to you. It's L.A. rain hitting a... <laughs> what sounds like a very loosely connected rain gutter right now. So it's hilarious. There you go. Well, but we'll see with your new place. <laughs> we will see. Right. So listeners, you know, as always, we're going to be giving you a timely and synchronous presentation of a review of the documentary entitled The Anthrax Attacks in the Shadow of 9-11 in the same week and a half that Pascal Cecile Vernique Ferrier, a dual citizen of Canada and France, was finally sentenced to 262 months in prison for sending threatening letters containing homemade ricin addressed to then-President Donald Trump in September of 2020. Ferrier also sent ricin-laden letters to eight Texas state law enforcement officials. Very, very mentally impaired individual with a history. Mm -hmm. And no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, this is not cool. And we'll also be giving you a little bit of the research that we went into about this particular poison how it's developed, how it's obtained, and how it is horrifically distributed. 
Yeah. Terrifying stuff. But that's, that's a whole separate case from what we're talking about today is just kind of weird that here we have this sentencing happening as, you know, essentially we're recording this. So this documentary that we're covering today is a single episode, 95 minute documentary that's easily watched in a single setting. Very important for Scott and I, because these, you know, ones we've stumbled into that are six episodes, we're like, God damn it. But you know, those are some of the good ones too. But our documentary today covers a truly baffling and horrifying crime committed against U.S. citizens by a U.S. citizen for reasons that are still not truly understood. And the 2001 anthrax attacks were a series of deliberate mailings of anthrax spores in the United States shortly after the September 11th terrorist attacks. So this was not the first time that this particular method of attack has been used. For almost a century, anthrax has been employed as a tool of harm on a global scale. In 2001, letters containing powdered anthrax spores were intentionally inserted into the U.S. postal system. This resulted in 22 individuals, including 12 male handlers, becoming infected with anthrax. And tragically, five out of these 22 individuals lost their lives. So these attacks caused panic and widespread fear as letters containing anthrax were sent to various media outlets and government offices, resulting in these five deaths and many infections. The incident prompted a massive investigation by law enforcement agencies and raised concerns about bioterrorism, leading to a heightened security measure and increased awareness of biological threats. As the subject of today's episode, the documentary that lays out the intense investigation of this crime also sheds light on the elements of implicit and explicit racism that affected the most direct victims of poisonings. So a bit of information before we dive into the episode itself. First, this documentary utilizes a method that to me, at least at the beginning, is pretty bizarre and completely unexpected. The reenactments are performed by very well-known actors as opposed Mm to sort of people that might be background actors or less experienced actors or maybe non-union actors. All these people are very well-known in television and film. Most notably, Clark Gregg, who plays Agent Coulson in the Marvel Universe, and Perry Gilpin, who's worked consistently as a guest star and a series regular in shows like Broad City and Frasier for decades. These reenactments are scripted, which I found somewhat off-putting at first, although they do explain that everything is taken really from direct reports of people that spoke with him and his own journal entries. So at first it was off-putting, and then I thought, wow, you know what, this is actually working because Clark Gregg is such a phenomenal actor. I mean, he... He does some stuff where you really it really gives you a a take on what it might have been the motivations for this alleged perpetrator. So, you know, you get deeper into the storyline. It becomes clear why this was really a good choice and probably why it had to be done, because the perpetrator or alleged perpetrator in this crime was a very, very complex figure. Yeah, I think this actually kind of worked here. You know, it starts off very traditional true crime documentary. You get the interviews with the real scientists. You get the news footage sort of overlapping with the voiceovers. And then it jumps to what looks like the behind the scenes of a filmed interview for a documentary like makeup person is prepping him and they, you know, the boom mic is over, but you have this actor playing the central figure to this story. And I thought, you know, that was weird. I wasn't expecting it, but it's, it's kind of inventive and different from other documentaries. And I think the explanation of some of the science would have been super dry and mundane, but they found a way to sort of sort of like weave it into these scenes where a scientist is explaining it to these FBI agents. And yeah, it, it definitely is different 
But we've talked so many times as you and I have now reviewed all these documentaries, what really doesn't work, what's weird, what like the weird animations. Right. And it's just how do you keep reinventing telling an old story with just either reenactments or the same old, you know, straight on interviews from folks. Yeah, agreed. Again, the quality of Clark Gregg's acting in this handful of dramatic scenes really takes it to a different level. And he's married to Jennifer Grey. Is he? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they're supposed to be like a really, I hope they're still married, you know, well, in Hollywood, who knows, but they're both supposed to be wonderful people. So there we go. But another point before we completely dive in, infection from ricin which is a poison that is found naturally occurring in what we call here in the U.S. castor beans. It's a type of bean which is edible when it's cooked. So again, while castor bean oil and well-cooked castor beans have been utilized for a very long time for their nutritional benefits, the raw bean itself is incredibly toxic. And when ricin is extracted from castor beans in a liquid or powder form, and then it's either ingested or inhaled, the substance causes a really slow and horrifying progression of symptoms that if they're not arrested very quickly can lead to death. There's a development of a vaccine but there is no cure for ricin po- poisoning. I mean, that, that vaccine is still being worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, although it is possible to survive depending on when, I think the amount of exposure to the substance or how quickly an intervention is made. I think there's one antibiotic named yeah, Cipro, Cipro, which is really sort of the go-to for the infection. However, really, really scary thing about anthrax is it mutates pretty easily. And it is a lethal bacterial infection that's caused by the bacterium bacillus anthracis. Wow, Dr. Scott, I didn't know you were that kind of doctor. I am not. (laughs) I am not a medical doctor. Let's be very clear about that. But it is amazing what you can just like push a button on your computer and go, hey, chat GPT, uh, explain me, explain to me what ricin is. Be my doctor. Yeah. (laughs) So this documentary essentially starts with scientists talking about how anthrax spores work in the body, which is absolutely terrifying. Oof, and yeah. I think a good way to to start this off because it has you on the edge of your seat, really. But no wonder this works so well as a biological weapon scare tactic from terrorists, be it domestic or foreign. But since you're on a roll, what more can you tell us about the process of how anthrax kills people? So in the infection stage, anthrax spores, and they are technically spores, um, the way they reproduce, which is different from all other types, not all other, but most other types of bacteria. But the spores get into the body through inhalation, ingestion, or skin contact, sometimes when the skin is broken. And once inside the body, the spores become active, and then they transform into another state called vegetative bacterium. And then in this state, they just like almost like the walking dead, they start multiplying really, really rapidly at the site of the infection. And then the toxins are released by that bacteria, get into the bloodstream, they start disrupting the body's ability to have cells communicate with each other. And this immediately leads to a range of effects inside the body causing tissue damage in the lungs and swelling throughout the body. It's a, the medical term for swelling is edema, where fluid collects in certain parts of the body. Like if you see someone with a swollen leg and yeah. it doesn't bounce back, that's not a sprained ankle. That is 
likely a blood clot. So you need to always watch for edema. But anthrax just is that on steroids. And then when anthrax is introduced by inhalation, the bacteria affects the respiratory system first, causing fever, cough, chest pain, and difficulty breathing, which can initially can think you're, you can think, oh, I've got the flu or I've got a cold, yeah. I'll get over this. And it's not. In that stage, it's the time that you really, really need to seek treatment because it can lead to hemorrhage, tissue necrosis, which means that basically the, the tissue is dying, and then severe respiratory distress and then finally into full-on organ failure. And then as that infection exponentially progresses, it triggers a massive immune response within the body, leading to what we know as septic shock. And then that further causes the immune system to spiral out of control and damage, you know, the organs that you need to live. Wow. So not so much Walking Dead, but more Last of Us with the spores from the fungus. Right. Yeah. Ugh. How quickly it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into the actual documentary and the timeline of these events. So we start off three weeks after 9-11. There is a Florida tabloid newspaper office worker who is essentially the first victim. So this is someone who dies and upon their investigation, they're like, okay, he contracted it. What they said naturally, quote unquote, naturally, while maybe hunting is what they theorize through inhalation. No one's really freaking out yet. You know, they're just kind of chalking it up to this unusual freak incident. However, the FBI response is absolutely activated at this point and they start going to the anthrax scientists to have them do their analyzing because it's like, okay, this might be a freak weird accident, but also do we need to keep our eye on this for any reason? Can we start tracking this? And so you have just kind of that one-off incident, like I said, very much in the shadow of 9-11 because this is just three weeks later. But then a letter gets sent to the NBC Nightly News building and that's in New York and it's addressed to Tom Brokaw. So very high profile. That letter gets opened by a female office worker and she's interviewed and she goes on to describe even what it looked like. You know, she immediately says she dumps it into the trash can, but it kind of looked like sand or like brown sugar almost. And this is really scary because it's a letter that has like the block lettering on the outside, but on the inside, the actual verbiage of the letter has these threads of international terrorism. So it says... It has the date, 9-11-01, this is next, take penicillin now, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. Like all the, the things you're supposed to say when you're trying to make it seem like it's Al-Qaeda sending a letter. Yeah, so, really just kind of hitting everything at once, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's interesting. I mean, she talks about opening this letter, obviously being terrified and immediately feeling like, I think she says... It felt like something was running through my veins. Like there's this very reasonable, in my opinion, psychosomatic response yeah. to, oh shit, what did I just open? And I completely empathize with this woman because, I mean, it's funny now looking back on it, but every single time when I was working patrol, I would feel weird phantom symptoms of being high whenever I booked math. Yeah, I was going to make a joke about that. <laughs> But, you okay. know, I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip it. I was going to say you cooked math. No, but like, <laughs> yeah, you know, having my version of that, which I've spoken about here before is, mm. you know, because of my age and my developmental era, you know, I kind of became an adult during the, you know, blood exposure scares of HIV. Yeah, because, yeah. You know, that 
that moment of like, even sometimes when I would see blood, which I've, I've moved past this. I mean, it was just a period of my life where, and I, you know, got some anxiety treatment for it, but you do, you just like feel things in your body because your body sure. was just like sending out all these warnings, you know? Yeah, exactly. I would get back and in I, my car and wash my hands and be like, okay, is my heart racing a little bit? Am I high? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. And like, and the fentanyl exposure now is a mm. very real possibility. And I think yeah. that they, I think they even had an example of some cops that were potentially exposed to fentanyl having psychosomatic yeah. responses. But you know, that's, that's to be understood. There's like, you can die immediately from that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, this was really what happened after this letter being sent was everyone thought this is the second wave of an Al-Qaeda terrorist attack. And then we have following that in mid-October of 2001, a letter gets sent to Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle. Everyone remembers that guy. Again, all of these letters have that classic, hey, I'm a terrorist block lettering on the envelope. Please don't open anything like that. If you ever receive a package <laughs> or a letter and you work at a place that is uh, I don't want to say important because it could be important to the perpetrator, right? I mean, we've seen that so many times. It just, it, it's pretty random. There's things to look for. Go on the Department of Homeland Security websites and you can see, hey, if this has excessive postage, if this is written like that, those are things that you want to be wary of. I'm telling you, I would be the first one to go because I never think of that. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to confess to all of our intimate uh... listeners there. Like if I get a present, it's like, oh, wait, a box. Let me just I, I open it like a monkey going after a cupcake. I'm just tearing <laughs> great through cardboard through envelopes. So have you not like, learned anything by I think I'm going to have to. Yeah. I mean, between between this fear and Ted Kaczynski, you know, <laughs> building homemade bombs that yeah. held out, I probably need to up my security. Yes, please. Protocols. So now, like with this one, it's it's absolutely on after that October. I mean, it, the investigation starts ramping up, but then you also have people in different office settings that are starting to actually die from anthrax inhalation. You know, again, we're talking office workers that are just tasked with opening the mail here. So I think it's interesting because we're looking so close after 9-11. And as I'm starting to think about this perpetrator, I mean, this person had to have a plan in place already. It's not like they just think it up and start rolling it out right after 9-11 because you have almost like this weird contagion effect like we see with mass shootings, right? One event sort of activates that person who's already on the pathway to violence to act out. And we have that like 15 day window with mass shootings where we see another one happen generally. But it, again, it's not as if someone that seed got planted right on that first day when it happened, and then they execute it within 15 days, it's already bubbling. You know, that's one of the reasons I, I love that we're friends. And I love that we're colleagues and, and content creators together, because that is something that I missed. It wasn't until I was looking in your bullet points for today's episode that I was like, oh, wow, I didn't make that connection. I I was absorbed in so many of the other issues around this alleged perpetrator that we're going to discuss, but that's yeah. really, really important. And it goes back to even just in our most recent interview with another show about how we always talk about the pathway to violence is an evolutionary process. Yeah. Nobody snaps. There's always a slow behavioral drift that leads them there. I mean, the twist here that's revealed when the scientists start comparing the anthrax samples to databases and guess what? 
the big reveal, it's not foreign. You know, they are able to nail down that it is something that is a strain of something that has come from the U.S. So this is most likely a domestic terrorist event. It matches with a strain called the Ames strain. And that that definitively identifies it as originating in an American lab. And at this point, we're now introduced to Dr. Bruce Edward Ivins through the actor portrayal by Clark Gregg. He introduces himself as a researcher at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, AMRID, and that he is a leading expert on anthrax. So as they move along with the reenactments, the documentary tells you know you as the viewer that the voiceovers and the recreated scenes are taken mostly from emails that the real Dr. Ivins wrote, as well as from FBI field notes from the investigation, as well as interviews with people that were close to him. And there's a lot of data there. There's a lot of data there because this is an individual who was very highly invested in getting his thoughts out on paper. And it works for developing a profile that's really pretty comprehensive. But we get to know a little bit more about him here. Almost immediately, they're talking to people in his periphery, and they describe him as eccentric, but very well thought of. And specifically, this is this is reiterated several times that he is not a person who comes across as self-important or aloof. This is an accessible guy. And in fact, he's a little too accessible for some people. He's yeah. an oversharer. He's a person who interrupts conversations, which is, of course, something I can relate to because I get corrected <laughs> on it all the time. Thank you. I like, I Thank like you, Melissa, of... <laughs> my sister-in-law, for correcting me on that. I appreciate it. I like how one of the scientists is like, yeah, he's like that weird nerdy guy sitting across the table. You know, like me, like, yeah, like I mean, so like that, that. that was like, like, yeah, we're, we're all scientists, of course, you know, we're all a little off. So, yeah. you know, he is really, really helpful to the FBI, which is very mm. interesting because you can look at it from so many perspectives, like somebody that's like, totally. yes, I want to help you do this. Or, or is there another motivation there? He is first comes across really a, a bit flustered. And then he really digs into this role of being sort of like the sidekick to the FBI, mm-hmm. you know, and he kind of keeps dropping bits of information. Well, what about this? And every time they ask a leading question, he just kind of expounds on it in a, a very surprising way. It's like more information, more information, which is... It's interesting because when we work with detectives or investigators that you and I have interviewed, one of the things that they'll say is like too much information is not always good because then it just opens up all these doorways that then have to be investigated, right? But he does clearly outline that he has a profound understanding of the infection, of the poison, how it's used, how it's disseminated. And he also goes really to make effort to make sure that he explains it to these agents in in layman's terms, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in a method that they would understand. Interesting stuff that starts to emerge about him and his personal life. He plays multiple musical instruments, including the banjo, which Mm. is not in itself problematic (laughs) to all my musician friends. It is not. The banjo is a wonderful instrument, but he also juggles. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and you know that's on my list, right? I know. Have, like jugglers, I, I like, professional stilt we, walkers. Yeah. Have we explained the list? I feel like I think we've, we've talked about it before. Have. Okay. My husband and I started creating a list like 25 years ago of problematic creative pursuits that just seemed to attract a, like a certain type of personality. And after and I, I did a I... show, <laughs> I did a Vegas show with the magician and I'm still traumatized by all the bird shit oh, that was on right. the stage because of him. So and, anyway. And as soon as Scott and I became friends, we just continued adding to that just list. Added, so. Yes. It's yeah. like, it's just pages long now. So he's like I said, he's also a juggler. But the problem isn't that it's tennis balls or foam balls, but he freaking 
juggles glass Erlenmeyer flasks, which are the type of like Bunsen burner flasks that are used in science experiments. And they show him, you know, there's a shot that's used a couple of times of either actor Clark Gregg juggling and dropping and breaking these flasks, or maybe it was his stunt (laughs) juggle double or something like that. Anyway, a very important clue here is shared in a statement made by Ivan's. It's a thrill to make a discovery that no one else has known. Yeah, yeah. He he has a lot of journal entries like that about what it's like being a scientist and how it's like being a detective and discovering things, which not untrue. Not <laughs> untrue, mean, really. but also in the big picture, as all of this comes together, it becomes like, well, that is an important puzzle piece, right? Yeah, that word thrill is what gets me. So the FBI understands that the suspect at this point has to be part of a very specific scientific community, but they're also relying on these folks for investigative purposes because they don't know anthrax speak, right? So it's like, okay, it could be anybody here, but we also need everyone here to to help us along with this investigation. And so they have an initial interview with Dr. Ivins and it seems like they approach it as like, hey, I need you to help us you know, please elaborate on your findings regarding the anthrax samples. But then there's like, for the viewer, the way the documentary is done, like this suspicion hanging in the air, like they know they're kind of looking into this guy, but they're making this as friendly as possible. And this had me think, you know, we've talked about the black robe effect, and maybe you can explain that a little bit. And I wonder if this was the guy, would that work here to kind of scare him a little bit? The black robe effect that you're talking about, the term comes from that judges you know, that sit in this massive seat of authority, you know, wear black robes in the courtroom. But it can also refer to anybody that's in an authority position. It can be, you know, black robe effect could be the authority of a a doctor or a police officer or a military commander. It's about someone that just really sort of inhabits like a very high level of power when it comes to judging you or containing a way that you're behaving in the community. And so to answer your question, in my experience, my educated answer is it depends. Because black robe effect tends not to have an effect on people that already believe that they're smarter than everybody else. Uh So, you know, if we're talking about people that have like really strong characterological flavors or personality disorder flavors, then black robe effect may not actually work because those individuals that think that they can successfully get away with ventures or plots or plans this big may be somewhat emotionally or mentally immune to that effect as they see themselves as so exceptional. Hmm. Hmm, What does this feel like? But I digress. But no, again, like someone that feels they're really, really special, even if they're not overtly aloof or uh, if they're not condescending, there's another version of personality disorder presentation that encompasses this that we'll talk about. So there are a lot of vital points here that can that are made during interviews with both former federal employees, as well as the USPS employees and the surviving family members as well. One statement in particular, that was the discussion of the mail system touching the entire United States. And yeah. because of it being particularly at that time, you know, the mail was I mean, our mail for all of its problems is still very efficient, relatively. At that time, it was really functioning at a very high level. And this fact makes it also fear-inducing part of the terrorism tactic for anyone, anywhere, and the lack of a screening system, but also for the thousands of postal and mailroom workers. And touching on that again, the majority of these workers were people of color. 
Yep. And the way that they were, their concerns were sort of not addressed with the urgency that they should have been is problematic. But interviews with mail carriers and postal workers who knew that the Brentwood station there was the central hub of the USPS where all the mail had to come through if it was going to these addresses where it was delivered. So yeah. a scientist and a mail worker that are interviewed go on to discuss how if the mail is going through these rollers for sorting that spores could get pushed out of the cracks or openings in the envelopes. And they use stock footage of the sorting machines that go through hundreds of thousands of mail pieces per day at 35 miles an hour. You're watching the clip yeah. that they're using and it's just a blur. Yeah. And that's just one track that you're looking at. There are multiple right. tracks throughout that building. If one of those envelope tears, it's going to fling particles everywhere. I mean, it'd mm. be like a, a, a dirty bomb, basically, yeah, a biological exactly. dirty bomb. So postal worker Joseph Kershine's sisters interviewed and she, you know, states very quickly, I was completely scared for the safety of my brother. And he was one of the employees there at the Brentwood station. She relates his sort of downplaying response, like minimizing it's all fine. They got it handled. I'm not particularly worried. And other workers from that location discuss how they were being told that everything was safe. We're going to have some guys in here in hazmat suits testing. So they're like, we're, uh, not in, we're not in hazmat suits. We're still expected to come to work. And here are these guys looking like they're from freaking et yeah walking yeah. through and you know taking and samples what yeah. right and so when they start pushing back a little against these protocols and pushing back to administration they're told if we shut down the post office the terrorists win oh good lord i mean talk about looking uncomfortable i mean the postmaster general is interviewed with this weird smile on his face. And he's stumbling through a later interview, basically implying that, well, we just did everything that we could do. And they absolutely did not do everything that they could or should have done. Yeah. I. So I was toggling back and forth between Netflix on my computer and my notes. Right. And I was listening to him talk as I was writing some notes. And then I toggle back to Netflix. And I'm like, why does he have this weird affect like it all over bizarre. his face? It was so he's like on it looked like maybe like a Larry King or like something like that. But I don't know. It was really weird. Yeah. I mean, he best. I mean, I don't want to make excuses for anybody in that position because that's that's the job that you take on. Yeah. But it really was not presented very well. Like either he was not given appropriate notes that could have addressed this in a better uh -huh. way for people or he was just vamping. But what does happen as all of these investigations are starting and they're taking tests and they're walking through in hazmat suits is that employees at USPS location start having significant symptoms. Their chest begin to hurt. Some of them have very labored breathing. And it was too late for Joe and another co-worker, Thomas Morris, who both died as a result of anthrax exposure. And Kershine's sister later recounts this terrible day that he was found unresponsive on the floor of his bathroom, just barely breathing. Thankfully, their deaths and service was acknowledged by the president in a conference. It was well-spoken by Bush. I have to like give him yeah, some credit. But absolutely. again... I wish that there had been more serious attention to this from the beginning. Yes. And just kind of one note, like the early sort of scary feeling in that workplace kind of gave me those feels of uncertainty from the COVID days when you and I were still going back to work. Absolutely. So that was interesting to kind of feel as I was watching this. But yeah, what's really stark here is the discrepancy from how the Brentwood Postal Office, or it's more of like a factory setting, really like a, a big hub, how that was treated. And again, you have a place where mostly people of color working in this industrial setting, as opposed to the offices where the letters were sent, 
where you have mostly white government officials, exposures, you have immediate evacuations, you have immediate testing of everyone. And one of the postal workers, I thought it was so profound. He said, you know, the dogs at those buildings got Cipro on Capitol Hill before we did. So <laughs> talk about comparisons. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Just to kind of recap at this point, there have been five deaths, 17 people have been made sick. So back to the investigation, there's a little blip here. She's throughout, but there's a former assistant U.S. attorney that talks about she she was not investigating at the time. I, she was a U.S. attorney. It sounds like that they got to come on to interview, but she kind of talks about how the investigation would proceed at this point, like how to rule people out, how to rule people in. And they go back and they're looking at the letters that were sent and they realize that on most of the letters... Every time the letter A or T is used, it's bolded, like written over a few times. You know, you go over a letter with a pen more than others to sort of make the A's and the T's stand out. And I was like, okay, so? Because like they don't talk about it again for a while, but put a pin in that because we'll come back to that in the investigation. And then there's a scene where Dr. Ivins, the, the actor portrayal, is talking about the things that he knows comes off as weird or wrong. And I, I think they're they're showing pictures of a document as he's talking. It looks like some journal entries, but also maybe some documented interviews from colleagues. And he says, I ask inappropriate questions. I ask personal questions. They're also kind of known as the grand Ivan's inquiries. Like he has this cutesy little name for them. Having some self-awareness that He's like encroaching in people's personal space in an odd way. There's talk about crossing boundaries, interrupting conversations, and then completely monopolizing the conversation, calling people and coworkers at all times of the night. There's pressured speech that people are observing and just the fact that he doesn't really listen to other people. So I think that's really telling, you know, as you and I later will talk about yeah. perhaps maybe personality wise, what's going on with him. It's just interesting to see his self-awareness about some of these things and then other people's experiences with him. And when the FBI agents ask him, finally, like they have to come out and ask him, were you involved? He totally denies it. And then they say, okay, you know, they kind of take that face value and are like, well, who else at US Amrid could have been involved? And he's like, well, lots of people because lots of people have access to this and then goes on to name two particular people. They don't give those names, but he leads them kind of down that road. But keep in mind, again, not only does the FBI know that the strain came from U.S. AMRED by this point, but still, these are some of the scientists that are helping them with their investigation, as well as another like third-party lab, if you will, because we we get that information later in the investigation. But still, this is really mucky to work through. I can't imagine as an investigator going, okay, how the hell do we navigate working with the potential criminal to help catch the criminal here? So I think that's really like one of the most intriguing parts of the story to me is that they're having to go about this investigation really in uncharted territory. They finally ask every scientist to send a sample of their strain that they've been working on to this outside lab, including Dr. Ivan has to do this. And none of them match. So at this point, he's in the clear. Again, like another twist. We've been talking about this guy <laughs> seeing reenactments and we're like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really weird twist in the investigation. Right. And he's an odd guy. So then you're going, well, okay, maybe 
maybe he isn't, you know, maybe, maybe he isn't a suspect. Him. He's just a, a, we're being judgy and he just really wants to help. Was it the largest FBI investigation in history? No, it was not, but it definitely falls within the top 15. I think it was right now it's at 14 oh, okay. in regards to how large this particular one was, but that actually only speaks of how many other ones have happened since then, which are huge events as well. Yeah, of course. And in June of 2002, the FBI zeroed in on a person of interest, and it's not Dr. Ivans. The FBI is quoted by the defense attorney that was involved as falling in love with Dr. Hatfield. I think it was Stephen Hatfield. Mm-hmm. And therein, of course, lies one of the major problems with any kind of investigation. I think and- it's funny because he says, yeah, these two dopey FBI agents fell in love with Dr. Hatfield. Just the way he puts it, I'm like, damn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that's I, I understand a defense attorneys is going to have a certain level of exasperation if they yeah. do have, well, certainly if they have hindsight and there's a lot of hindsight being discussed here. So I, I can see both sides of it, but this is a perfect example of one of the major problems with any kind of investigation. When you focus so hard on one individual and you sort of start mentally highlighting just a few of the problematic areas that are found in that individual. And look, Hatfield, they don't have an actor play him. You're just seeing all this footage of him. He has a very particular look and carriage that's notable. He's a big guy and he's a dark guy, you know, fair skin, but dark hair, dark eyebrows. And he comes across with this presentation that might seem intimidating to some because he kind of is a scowly guy, like kind of has a, a blunted but kind of scowly, threatening, kind of affect. pompous little piece to him too. Yeah. You know, yeah. he walks, I mean, like, I kind of like that he walks very confidently, but there's even this moment where they're interviewing someone and they go, oh yeah, he had a big bushy mustache and really narrow set eyes. It's like, <laughs> okay, okay. You know, he's the first real person of interest. So this is where one of the additional sort of talking heads is brought in that was involved at the time. And she's a former U.S. assistant attorney. And she really came across to me in these first few sections of her interview as being a total apologist for the bungling of the FBI's efforts when Hatfield was the main suspect. And look, again, we're seeing one particular slice that this documentary is presenting to us, but it really does look like they did not handle this well. They really just, they were trying to make a puzzle piece fit because this was an unlikable person. You know, he didn't happen to be weird, but he kind of comes across as unlikable and a little bit of, you know, sort of condescending and self-important. Those things that, you know, they misinterpreted interpreted and let it characterize their view of him. Well, and aside from like kind of laser focusing on this person, maybe taking away from other suspects, the other piece to this that was pretty disturbing is it was really evident that the FBI was like feeding the media stuff about him. Yep. Like, let's, you know, let's some, sweat him out is the term yeah, they used. It, there you go. Yeah, exactly. So he was being hounded. His, his house was being surrounded, which I mean, maybe that's a legit tactic, but, you know, you should probably use it a little more carefully. But, you know, I'm not an FBI agent. Anyway, this former U.S assistant attorney says, when you have a suspect, you're going to want to look at every aspect of his life. And as the defense attorney then points out, you know, there are clear indications that Hatfield was quote unquote, sweated by the FBI. And eventually, though, it all falls apart. There is no case against him. And Hatfield is cleared of all the allegations. And then the case kind of goes dark for a while. Although Ivans continues to engage 
with his assigned FBI handlers. And a handful of years later, the FBI then shifts in administration and management. And that results in somebody just going, you know, this went dark, but why don't we give it a fresh set of eyes? Yeah, and, exactly. You know, that is the very term that's used is let's get a fresh set of eyes on this. And it turns out that if that was absolutely the right thing to do. Right. So nearly five years later, we're yeah. now 2006. This fresh set of eyes leads to actually the first of two main pieces of evidence and a major development in the technology at this point. So the technology that's developed in DNA sequencing, which now and I mean, now is in 2006, allows the investigators to follow a genetic map of the mutation of the particular strains of anthrax that were used in the attack. And in regards to the clues, the first is this specific flask that they can right. trace it back to. I guess it wasn't one of the ones he was juggling. <laughs> right. Hopefully not, or there'd be a right. lot more people dead. So this flask is called RMR. 1029. And it's a flask of anthrax from the initial investigation that was supposed to have been disposed of. But by happy accident, I guess you could call it, it's determined that this flask holds very important information about the two strains that have emerged during the investigation. And now the genome of the killer bacteria is part of evidence. So again, this flask, RMR 1029, was belonging to Dr. Bruce Ivins that had the flask contained anthrax spores that he had created for his experiments mm. that he was doing specifically. So now we're all back on him. However, many people had access to those spores, including them being sent out to other labs. But at least at this point, they now have a pool of suspects to cross-reference to where the letters were sent from, which was Princeton, New Jersey. The second hugely condemning piece of evidence is obtained during a trash trawl of sorts by the FBI. They surveilled Dr. Ivan's home, and after the initial search, as expected, late at night, he exits its home to place a book in the garbage can. And this book is a seminal and very heady academic work on coded language, which when they discover that the letters A and T going back to the letters, are used in DNA codons, which is a unit used for coding genes. And they start working with the letters and working with these codes and realize that the code from the letters translate to F and Y, or you can interpret that as fuck New York. And he had had writings and in talking with people, seemed like he really had a distaste for New York, yeah. <laughs> which totally fits if that's the thing. I could also see this as a reach. I mean, you know, with all like the Zodiac, like code right. breaking that happens, you can kind of make things turn into however you want them to. I don't know. What did you think about that? I thought it was interesting, but it also seems a little bit to me like a red herring because uh, what does that mean? Like you've never mentioned up to this point, and we're now about halfway through the documentary, if not over halfway yeah, through. Yeah. And part of his quirks, you know, you never was never mentioned like, yeah, he just didn't like big cities or like, so it's just like thrown in here with no context. Yeah, it does. I mean, that there isn't context there. We're just yeah, saying that it's it was not weird. presented to us. Yeah, exactly. So as the FBI close in, they now also look at Ivan's occupancy of his workplace. So there's very strict 
record keeping as far as like when you're entering certain labs and whatnot. And they're quickly able to correlate that he has had a lot of extended late night work sessions, which is called in this area, I guess, which is the the main part of the lab where you got to like suit up and everything terrifyingly referred to as the hot suites. So yeah, he's spending a lot of time in there at some really poignant times preceding the letters being sent out and times that match up with these flasks being used. So it seems like there's some really good work being done here finally. Yeah, they're putting together some points that were just missed before. That's kind of amazing that they did not correlate like the time of the attacks and his being in the office. That seemed like a big miss in the previous investigation. But you are also now starting to get like a really much bigger picture of how much Ivan is helping with the investigation. And he appears to have flooded the previous investigation with a lot of diversion And what I really think was misdirection, intentional Mm -hmm. misdirection. Now that he's being called on his inconsistency, his underlying mental health issues, quirks and eccentricities are really, really being looked at much more carefully with much more scrutiny. And the documentary refers to a closer look at his mental health issues. And of course, some very strange behaviors that to me are incredibly obvious, but course, I'm a clinician, like having multiple different mailbox addresses under multiple aliases, different rental locations and different phone numbers. Yeah. And now they reveal at this point that he's married. I know. What? (laughs) What? Like, so we've now gotten through half of it and they haven't even mentioned that he has a family, which is very, very bizarre to me. But, you know, after he's confronted by this new investigative team and Who knows how much of this is dramatized? We really don't know. But he's encouraged to cooperate. And then he's transported in a a federal car. And Ivan says, well, my my contact is Special Agent Hayward. And they just flatly turn to him in the car and go, Hayward is no longer on this case. Yeah. And you can see, like, it terrifies him. Yep. You know, he realized, and I mean, of course, this is the actual portrayal, but that's one of the things that makes it so good. And he really starts to crumble in this portrayed moment. And he states quite forcefully in the records, I'm a patriot, Mm -hmm. which is so interesting because where do we hear that? We hear that from other domestic terrorists that say, I'm I'm a patriot. Yeah. Interesting language instead of just like, I'm not guilty. I didn't do this. You guys are looking in the wrong place. it's, It's more like, how dare you? I'm a patriot. Yeah, yeah. So at this point, the reason they're sort of taking him away in the car and it comes to light that he's married is because they tell him we're executing a search warrant at your house right now and your wife's fine sort of thing. But you're just, yeah, your mouth's open. You're like, wait, I'm sorry, wife, because I was picturing this guy in like a seedy apartment alone by himself or something. But yes, this this is where the documentary takes a very definitive focus on Ivan's many concerning behaviors and historical indicators of emotional instability, where he earlier admitted in the documentary through a dramatic reading of his journal entries to a number of annoying behaviors. There is now a deeper dive into his computer history and his home, which reveals so much more and quite honestly, a turn I didn't know we were going to be going into. Yeah, this was... Very, very surprising because his emails reveal clearly what are fixations or obsessions that he actually even confesses to when he's confronted on them, particularly with one female coworker that he feels 
quite comfortable with. I mean, I would say darkly uncomfortable comfort. Yeah. From, I got really uncomfortable with it. He is just drowning this poor woman in deeply emotional and very darkly themed emails. He relates a number of somatic symptoms. Somatic symptoms are those that we feel in our body. They may be linked to an actual organic illness, or they might be linked to sort of a, an emotional presentation of pain. Two of them that he described were numbness in his arm and a metal taste in his mouth. Honestly, you know, while somatically expressed mental health issues can hit anyone and any part of the body, clearly, this one sounded immediately to me like he could have had some sort of seizure disorder. Then he goes on to describe his quote unquote episodes as times where he cannot control how mean irritable, angry, and withdrawn he becomes, and as well as sort of areas of blanked out time, like mm -hmm. things that he doesn't remember. Yeah. And his special name for the recipient of all these emails is pretty telling. He says, you get to be my secret sharer. So creepy. Ooh. I don't know why that wording is just so weird. It's, well, because it's very, it's, it's very creepy and cringy because it is yeah. almost like adolescent. It's yes. very, very adolescent in its presentation. And to see, you know, a 60 something year old man using this kind of terminology inappropriately oversharing with uh -huh. a coworker who clearly looks overwhelmed, you know, it just yeah. adds to that discomfort that we feel. Yeah. And, and for the record, I think it would have been very easy for him to have knowledge that you know, that metal taste in the mouth and the numbness is indicative of something else. And he could True. be laying the groundwork for a defense here. Yep. But anyway, we'll we'll get to that and our thoughts about that. But further investigation reveals that for years Ivans has had an obsession with the KKG sorority, Kappa Kappa Gamma, and it's been going on for literally decades. decades. So while in college, he had asked out a co-ed in the 1960s who is a member and resident of that sorority house. She declines and Ivans becomes obsessed with her and later by connection becomes obsessed with the sorority itself. And in somewhat of a mysterious development, Ivans decides <laughs> to steal the cipher code used by the sorority. Yes, which is a thing in Greek fraternity and sorority systems, which is another rabbit hole, which we can touch right. on later. But exactly. <laughs> right. But in stealing the cipher, Ivans was then able to decrypt their code. And this information was then used to create a fake profile for himself, masquerading as a female student and infiltrate their chats and websites, meaning like infiltrate it in the time period that we're yeah. talking about here, because obviously websites didn't, you know, weren't a thing back in the sixties. We're talking about behavior that was decades later. To, yeah. yeah. Wild. So following extensive interviews with the coworker, the secret sharer, the FBI was able to convince her to help them gather more evidence. And her collaboration resulted in meeting with Ivan's while wired up. And there are a few different threads of conversation here. And a great deal of information is further revealed with Ivan's describing blank episodes in his memory and more somatic symptoms, paranoia about being followed, and even going so far as to describe some alternate 
personas here. Yeah. So at one point, the secret chair asks him directly if he had anything to do with the poisonings. And, you know, as an audience, we can't really tell what happened in that moment because it's a dramatic reenactment. Unless I'm mistaken, I don't believe that the secret chair is actually interviewed in person. No. It's played by an actress. But Clark Gregg as Ivan's in a very dramatic, well acted and pregnant pause responds with, I don't remember doing anything like that. So he also appears to realize that his friend may be helping to gather information because there seems to be a shift in his level of trust for her. So he just sort of detaches, has like a change. And in this scene, which again is dramatized, but it was really impactful. He stands up from his chair, reaches over across the table and caresses her cheek saying, you used to be so beautiful. What is that about? <laughs> it was so fucking weird. I oh, don't know. <laughs> God, it was so creepy. Yeah, it, it was very, you kind of get this idea that he's really decompensating. Like he yeah. knows they're on to him. Obviously, yeah. they're doing search warrants and such. And maybe this person that he saw as a confidant, now the light switch flips to like, oh, she could be in on it sort of thing. So the narrative here at this point ends up returning to his journal entries and some email communications that even if untrue and solely for dramatics is problematic. If true, then really an indicator of enormous passive hostility. He describes several incidents of choosing to walk through town at night in what he describes as like a dangerous neighborhood with a gun, hoping to be confronted or assaulted, and then having an excuse to use it. And then going back to kind of the, the sweating interview with yeah. the FBI, Ivans is really put on the spot. And it's revealed that he's been probably somewhat profiled by a psychologist who has prompted these agents to use particular wording and phrasing to throw him off. Well, Maybe even I would say like the behavioral analysis unit, I'm sure is who yes. they, they used at this point. But the first question they ask is, what's with you and women? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a really provocative like question for the FBI to ask. Yeah. And again, we're watching a dramatic reenactment, but the implication is that the tactic worked and really threw him off. So that's great. They're getting him off of like whatever he had pre-programmed into his head to answer, you know, what he thought they were going to ask. So now we return to the dramatic readings of his later journal entries, which have more of a martyrdom complex, dramatic tone. So do you want to read some of those for us? Yeah, this one was quite dark. He says, I have this terrible feeling that I've been chosen for the blood sacrifice. Go down low, low as you can go, and then deeper, and that's where you'll find my psyche. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So again, like you were saying, I think there's some real decompensation going on here. That is, a again, my favorite little phrase, a constellation of factors that are coming to bear in this particular moment. And in the last 15 minutes of the documentary, we hear the 911 call that his wife makes to emergency services. She found him unconscious after several glasses of wine and a lot of pills. Ivan's is transported to the hospital where he later dies of overdose. Yep. So here we are with no resolve to this case. So psych issues that we picked up on, I'm sure you picked up on here. Just sort of recapping, we have this odd eccentric behavior. He's brilliant. He's hardworking, but with a number of these unusual behaviors and social interactions with others, just poor interpersonal skills. His social life seems to be dependent on the ambivalence of those around him. He's odd, but they feel sorry for him, but they also know he's really good at his job. And his mission initially was driven by developing a vaccine that would not cause as strong of an allergic reaction 
or scarring on the arms of soldiers that it was given to. And as time went by, anthrax grew to be less of a threat. You know, it, it wasn't something that I think it had a lot of focus on it like it used to. So we can surmise here that maybe he was driven to stay a little bit more relevant in his field as well as whatever his other grievances may have been if he was, in fact, the perpetrator of these crimes. But I think we need to go back to, you know, this issue of a possible red herring. I don't know. But are there some traits or full-on dissociative identity disorder going on here? Or is this more of a narcissistic personality disorder? So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that list that, you know, one of the things when we talk about what used to be called cluster B personality disorders, which are the more dramatic and attention seeking ones, not all of them, but certainly the majority of them, there is a uh, particular individuals with borderline or histrionic disorder, there can be periods of what we call pressured speech, like speaking mm -hmm. very rapidly, mm -hmm. sort of crossing boundaries, speaking over people, interrupting. But where it gets complicated is that's also a symptom in a manic episode for bipolar disorder. Yeah. So and there have been many brilliantly smart people who have done some very unsavory things during periods of mania, very unsavory and dangerous. So again, it's very complex here. We're definitely working with something, but I'm not sure we'll ever know. But, you know, going back to, I think, you you know, you brought up a great point about whether he knows that he's sinking and now he's got to create this other alternative, like maybe I need to go for not guilty by reason of insanity. And I'm going to try and get people to think that I have DID, dissociative identity disorder. So he refers several times to these episodes where he feels numbness in his arms or experience with that metallic taste in his mouth. I mean, I did find this interesting. And I wanted, I immediately thought, I wonder if there was an autopsy performed mm -hmm. to rule out any kind of brain trauma, organicity, brain cancer, you know, or, or some structural issue. But the doc, unfortunately, leaves this a bit too open, or they just didn't think that it was important. And with that particular lack of detail overlooked, the focus shifts and implies that he may have had DID, even though they're not super explicit about it. Yeah. And just as a reminder, I mean, one of our, I mean, if we, we don't really go by seasons here at LA Not So Confidential, but one of our first episodes was about the controversy about the diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder. And that was formerly known as multiple personality disorder. And it's very complex. It's very controversial within the mental health community. And it's a controversial condition. And it's hotly debated. This controversy really actually causes a great deal of rifts between diagnostic schools of thought. And it, it yeah. really kind of comes down like hard on two sides. One is that, yes, this exists, but it's incredibly rare and we still need to figure it out. And then there's the, the true believers really seem to somewhat go overboard. So DID is characterized by the presence of two or more of what are called distinct personality states or identities that are believed to be held within a single individual. Each of these individual identities may have its own distinct behaviors, memories, and perceptions. And people with DID assert that they experience gaps in memory between these different identities, or as they are more commonly known as alters. The current underlying theory is that the condition is thought to emerge as a coping mechanism during childhood in response to exposures to episodes of severe trauma. And the theory is that the fracturing of the self is a way for the mind 
to compartmentalize and protect itself from overwhelming experiences. The most current research also emphasizes that personality disorders often have a distinct biological quality to them as well, with likely small but significant differences in brain structures. So we're, we're even tuned into this a little bit more. And what I picked up is some of the verbiage yeah. from Dr. Ivins, where he says, I'm like a passenger watching from the outside of, you know, his own behaviors of his own body. And then he even talks about how he'll wake up in the morning and see emails that he sent the night before with no memory of doing that. I don't know if that could be due to alcoholism or something. Well, that's too. exactly <laughs> what I was going to say is that it was clear that he was in his, his alcohol use had been increasing, but we yeah. don't even get like, was he using other things that, you know, sedatives or hypnotics, you know, what is, are the other pills that he was doing that that he was using before his suicide. Yeah. Ultimately, again, it's just controversial. Many people believe the disorder is either not valid and then others saying that it's overdiagnosed and then there's the true believers. But this is problematic because it leaves a lot of possibility that therapists may inadvertently encourage or create the development of mm -hmm. belief in these multiple personalities through suggestion. And the power of suggestion is very, very strong. And then that process of the treatment, which is leading questioning. Unfortunately, this has been proven to be true in a number of landmark events here in the U.S. And then there's also the belief that symptoms of DID may actually be the presentation of other mental health disorders, such as borderline personality disorder or complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. So if you guys want a more exploratory conversation on DID, Go all the way back to episode 12. It's called Multiple Personality Disorder is Not a Thing. And we talk way more about these issues there. So I think the other thing that we're really wondering about here is covert narcissism. So most of us through the media are reading or God forbid, coworkers, yeah. people you know, <laughs> know what narcissism looks like. And in the overt version, you see the behaviors and the characteristics that include an excessive focus on themselves, a need for admiration, and a lack of genuine empathy for others. Common narcissistic behaviors include things in addition to that grandiosity, where individuals may inflate their own importance and achievements with constant seeking of attention and validation. And narcissists often lack empathy and disregard the feelings and needs of others, displaying entitlement, both consciously and unconsciously, doing that by exploiting relationships for personal gain. They can also be highly controlling and struggle with handling criticism, as well as having challenges appreciating other successes due to the envy that runs throughout the narcissist. So now we take that and we kind of flip it. And this is a version of a diagnosis that is not in the DSM, but it's often spoken about in people who do a lot of research on personality disorders. There is a classification called covert narcissism. And covert narcissists are characterized by a subtle and more understated manifestation of those traits that Dr. Shade was describing compared to their overt counterparts. Covert narcissists can appear modest, reserved, self-effacing on the surface. They can project this image of humility and sensitivity, but... Beneath this facade lies a really deep-seated need for validation, admiration, and a preoccupation with their own 
perceived specialness. Now, that preoccupation with their own perceived specialness is basically a defense mechanism for feeling inadequate and non-special. Covert narcissists may engage in manipulative tactics such as playing the victim, using guilt, or employing passive-aggressive behavior to control and manipulate others. Covert narcissists are very skilled at exploiting empathy and sympathy to fulfill their emotional needs while maintaining an outward appearance of vulnerability. Their covert nature can make them challenging to identify as they excel at disguising their inflated sense of self-importance behind a mask of apparent modesty and vulnerability. Oh, man. We know people like this, don't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So those are our two considerations for you as, you know, we kind of look back on Dr. Ivan's and, you know, which is, again, another story that we don't have any resolve on. And I'm I'm glad this documentary is here to kind of bring this back to our attention. So there are individuals that believe he was innocent, or at least there was not enough evidence to have convicted him. And really, the arguments are strong on either side. But the proximity, the long festering grievances, implications of serious personality issues, and the boundary violations seems pretty indicative. Again, may never know. Well, interesting, because one of his scientist buddies that absolutely, you know, confirms how strange he is, confirms how problematic he was, confirms how bad the case looks, is still saying, you know, but I don't think he did it. Mm. And then there are others that are saying, like, look, he may have taken himself out, but there's all this evidence that shows how could it have possibly been anyone else, given yeah. all these factors that we're looking at, even even if some of the evidence seems to be a little bit more ambiguous than they would like. But when in regards to our rating, I really liked it. I gave it four brains. I thought that I would be annoyed when I first started watching it, but uh -huh. I thought it was well produced. Having such gifted actors really brought a different experience to it. And I think my really my only critique of it is I really wish they had expounded more on how racially charged this was and how it yeah. was handled. I mean, yeah. I really think that like the the lack of attention to the postal workers was just shocking. It was really uh -huh. shocking. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to give it three brains. I think it was okay as far as true crime documentaries go. But I do think it's an important documentary and really to remember what happened during that time. One, two, of course, all of the victims. But as you mentioned, you know, these people that were treated in stark opposition to, you know, how some of these quote unquote more important people were treated is really something we need to be reminded of, as well as like the title says, it all being in the shadow of 9-11 and the psychological terror that someone from our own country can instill on the public when we often think of terrorism coming from outside yep. of this country is really important. You know, again, hearkening back to our domestic terrorism episode at the beginning of this month. So, you know, a little slow, a little different. Some things I really like about it. But yeah, I think it's an important one for people to watch. Yeah. So thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you to all of our new Patreon members and our new YouTube subscribers. It's very, very exciting. And welcome all of them to the Discord channel where there is just excellent conversation happening. Dr. Shiloh and I have been very busy in the last month in the yeah. crossover contributor interview area of podcasting. We've been guesting and asked to comment as well as, you know, your starring role on Surviving Stop the Survivor. 
So please, you know, keep your eye on our social media because we'll announce whenever these other interviews or when we guest host or guest contribute on other pods, we'll definitely drop a note in the feed. We would love for you guys to see what we've been involved with. Yeah, actually, you know, talking about some interesting topics, some that we are expounding on from before and just some good new different conversations with some new friends in the podcast world. Absolutely. Stay tuned. And with that, everyone, we'll see you next week on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.